it's been a couple weeks since I've been here on Sunday morning. I mean, I've been here, but I haven't been in the pulpit for as far as preaching. We've had some wonderful things happen over the last couple of weeks. Amen? Celebrating our anniversary and celebrating what God is doing through missions, through Crossroads. We've had a great week, by the way. The uh, evangelistic rally that was happening through North Canadian Baptist Association wrapped up last night, a powerful night. We had three good nights of worship, amazing opportunity to, to hear to hear the talent of our, of our association, and, and I'm sure there's deeper wells of talent there than we even realize, but we had a great week, so excited about this morning. I hope that, that you are excited about God's Word. I hope you came ready to hear from that, so I, if you will turn in your Bibles to John. And when you get to John, if you will find the 19th chapter, and when you find the 19th chapter, if you will look for the 17th verse. John chapter 19, verse number 17. And when you get there, if you would stand in honor of God's Word. John chapter 19, verse number 17 says this. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in the Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we approach this week, the week before Easter, Lord, I hope that we would look to the cross and that we would be reminded at every turn that we would have a depth of conviction inside of us knowing exactly what has transpired to redeem each and every person who would call upon your name to be saved. I ask, Lord, that as we study this this morning, that we might be, that we might be, Lord, broke open in such a way that you would investigate our very hearts and that you would determine within us what needs best done to change and transform our lives forever. And I ask, Lord, that we would be willing to submit to your, to your change. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know it's a lengthy passage, but I... I 
I, I struggle in, and I don't know if you realize this, but it's something that's magnificent in the course of, of being able to share God's word from the pulpit is, is that you really have about 50, 50 plus weeks, you know, 52 if you preach every single week, if you don't take a week off. And, and as you can see, the last couple of weeks I wasn't in the pulpit. And of course, I have other times I can teach throughout the year. But to this audience, I have about 50 opportunities. I could probably spend 50 opportunities just on the Passion Week. And so I always struggle a little bit this time of the year trying to capture the, the very essence of the thing that I feel like God would have you hear. And so as I settled in on this passage and, and realizing that I've read a lengthy one to you this morning, I understand that, that for brevity's sake, we won't look specifically at every word, but we will try to capture the heartbeat of everything that's here. Because it's important for us to understand that there's so much to unpack. And next week when we come and we gather, it'll be an equally challenging, if not more challenging, opportunity for us to try to unpack that. And so as we focus in at a segment of the story, I hope that you will see, you will see a perspective of what each and every one of us looks like in Jesus' eyes from the cross. I, I really hope that you understand that when you consider this story that Jesus is hanging there on the cross and he is observing the world around him. He is seeing and dialoguing with two thieves or the people on the cross on either side of him. He is dealing with his own disciple. He is dealing with his family that is assembled. He is dealing with their friends. He is looking at all these things. But he sees so much deeper than just those individuals because what he's doing is for every single one of us. Well, as we begin to unpack the, the verses and moving pretty rapidly here, I want you to, to focus with me on verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went out to the place called, or place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and the two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, this title that Pilate puts there, and in my opinion, if you're really kind of on the, the dialogue, and, and I will tell you that having worked with teenagers and youth throughout the course of, of 20 years of ministry, they have told me I'm not cool anymore. Okay, I know this, but what I'm about to say will sound dated in their ears and probably new in yours, but what happens next is that one of the chief leaders of the religious world leans in and tries to make a correction to Pilate, who is the governing authority over the area. And in one, probably one of the most gangster moments, and this is where I don't sound hip to the young, but I sound foreign to you adults, I get it. He tells him, I have written what I've written. I have said what I've said. Because there's a moment here where the world wants to define Jesus in a certain way. They want to change who he is. They want to rewrite the story all of the time. You, you read the passage and you see it. Pilate has written and he is the foremost authority in this part of the world. He has people he answers to understood, but he writes it in numerous languages, and he's immediately contested. The chief priest, verse number 21, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am king of the Jews. He says, don't say that he's the king of the Jews. Say that that's what he called himself. But I'm here to tell you that as other people wiser than me and stronger in their skills of study and research have talked about and have discussed that Jesus is exactly who he says he is or he's crazy or he's a liar 
And you have to decide this morning which one he is. Josh McDowell in his famous study, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. But Jesus is described as the king of the Jews by the foremost authority in this region of the world. And the religious world wants to rewrite it and say, no, no, no. Just say that's what, that's what he's thought of himself. We don't recognize him this way. And like I said, in the most gangster moment in all of, all of this passage, Pilate answers him in verse 22. What I have written, I have written. I mean, this is a, a key moment where if you're in charge, you don't take instruction from other people about what you should be doing or not doing. You tell them what to do, right? I mean, there's the key moment here when, when the religious leader's leaning in and trying to tell him something. He's like, get off my lawn. That's one of the litmus tests to know. When you're getting a little older. You're like, people move stuff in your yard, and you're like, who's been in my yard? Your little kingdom, your territory, right? Uh, some of us do this in our own house, right? There's an ongoing struggle in my house of, of who moved my remote. And I want to look around at the children that are in my house, and I want to say to them, get off my lawn, and I realize they're mine. But Pilate is is seriously in a bad spot. If you understand the history of this lesson, you will know that he is in a bad place. He has the Jewish people that are, that are on the verge of, of upheaval. You have Jesus, and Jesus is transforming the landscape of the world around him. You have Rome breathing down his neck of how he should behave. And Pilate was, by, was, was on an island out here on purpose. And it is said historically of him that he was in a bad spot, and to mess up here would have been the end of his career, if not his life. And he is dealing with all of the stress on every side. Can you identify? Sometimes you look up in the morning, you're like, there's so much to do and there's so much to deal with. I just don't know how I'm going to get it done. Anybody here ever feel that way? And you've got pressure from, from the immediate context of family and work and everything else. And you see the, 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 the nature of it is overwhelming. And you're like, I just don't know. And then somebody will come up and they'll tell you how to do it. And you'll be like, I have written what I have written. It is what it is. Point number one, if you're following along and taking notes this morning, is the world will try to define you. The world is trying to define Jesus all the time. They are trying to rewrite who he is. They are trying to rewrite what he said. They are trying to say he didn't mean what he meant. And if you study the language, you understand that there's a, a gross misrepresentation of him all over the place. And it is heinous in the ears of people who have really studied it to look at it and say, that is not what he said. And that is not who he is. And the problem is, is that we're so afraid that it will be offensive for us to stand up for him that we say nothing. Pilate is just like, I've said what I've said. You can define him personally, but you can't define him authoritatively. Right? I have oftentimes had discussions, even in my own household, where I'll say, you know, the problem is, is the majority of people might walk outside on a clear day, look up at the sky, and say, the sky is green. And just because a volume of people have des described it this way doesn't make it accurate. It doesn't matter how many people say a thing. If it's inaccurate, it's not accurate. One person can say, you guys are just outside of your mind. It's blue. But, but the majority of people are saying a truth right now that they believe to be true and they have rewritten the rules and they say, they say, no, green. And you're like, no, blue. And they're like, you're just one voice. And you're like, yeah, but I'm right. The problem is, is that 
we would allow the world to rewrite the truth because there's a bunch of them that want to do that. And they're going to try to define you as who they say you are. Never be mistaken about who you are because the scripture has lots to say about the matter on who you are. And it had everything that is important for us to know about who Jesus is. It describes him as who he is. Don't let the world define you and don't let other people define you and don't let misguided religion define you. Let the Bible define you. Let it describe who you are before a creator that made you intentionally on purpose the way he made you. Don't let it re rewrite the story and sure don't let it rewrite the story about who Jesus is. Moving quickly now to verse number 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garment. Notice this morning I'm going to spend no time whatsoever describing the brutal nature of his crucifixion and and. It's not that it needs to be absent, but I think that you'll have an opportunity when you come on Friday night to, to, to observe the Stations of the Cross here that you'll see exactly the, the measure of what happened to Jesus. And I hope you'll come to that, by the way. You'll come and you'll be able to pray through a variety of different images with some scripture attached to it, and you'll be able to contemplate everything that Jesus went through on the Passion Week. That's going to be our Friday night this week. But when you do that, you'll be able to see all the things that I'm not talking about that you are welcome to study on your own. There's too much to unpack. So I'm going to focus on this. We get to this moment where Jesus has been crucified. Inherently, we understand the magnitude of this. It says, after he'd been crucified, that he took his garments. Jesus was just like he was born into this world with nothing on. And you think about how embarrassing that might appear to the world. But I, I want you to know that if you're taking notes this morning, that the second one is an important thought. All you have when you die is who you are. Your possessions won't go with you. The things that you think are important to buy right now will not go with you. The, the fortress you have built yourself to, to live in and be comfortable in will not go with you. My missing remote will not go with me. No matter how much I want it next to my chair, when I sit down, these things that seem like they matter don't matter. But who you are is what you have when you die. And Jesus is on the cross proving it to us that he is exactly there with nothing. And there's this beautiful statement that was said to me at some point. I was, I was wrestling with trying to help a, a, a dear lady that was in a bad spot. Her husband had passed away suddenly. And they didn't have anything. And in the place I just happened to live, uh, the, the funeral home that had been appointed by, the, by the, the Justice of the Peace to take care of the matter in Texas was leaned in and they had, they had taken, taken steps to help. And as I reached out to them, I said, now, I, I don't know how to explain this to you, but to, other than to say this family's in a bad spot and this woman doesn't have anything. And he began to walk me through there. The, one, of the, one of the main guys, part of the family that ran that organization, he said, and he said this phrase, and I'll never, I'll never forget it. He said, from the prince and his scepter to the pauper and his cane, we treat everyone the same. And I thought, man, if that's not a picture of Jesus on the cross with nothing. You see, his garments were the garments of a teacher, the garments of a, of a king. I mean, this is the Jesus who is crowned in Revelations, who has, has, wears priestly garbs and royal garments, and he has none of this now on the cross. 
that everyone will be the same because he is bare before the world, saying that he wants to look just at you and understand the magnitude of it. Understand the importance, the reality of it is what? That they divide his stuff up. The same will be said of us. When we're gone, people will divide our stuff. There's much that could be said about this, but for brevity's sake, we move forward. The scripture is fulfilled. We understand it. It says in verse number 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said, and before we get to that, I want you to see this picture of the cross. Jesus is there, and Pilate has been there because Pilate has nailed the thing to his cross. And now his family is gathered, and you're like, this is something to behold that it, at the moment just before his passing away, that you see this, this gathering of people, important people, beloved people. And there's a crowd too, by the way. That's described throughout the scriptures. The spectacle of our demise, you know, the understanding of our undoing. But there's something I want you to see here today. There's something that I want you to behold with regard to this. That Jesus is, is at the cross and he is looking down upon the disciple whom he loves and his mother. And there's something that pierces me. Most of us in the midst of our hard things and our suffering and the depth of our sacrifices that we're making, however small they might be, or however magnitude of them might be large in our own estimation, we oftentimes when we're making these moments of sacrifice, we are thinking about ourselves and what it's costing us. But Jesus in the greatest moment of his sacrifice and the magnitude which is far beyond our measure is looking in this moment at other people. He is looking in this moment away from the cross at those who are assembled. Have you come to the cross to be seen by Jesus? Because it's at the foot of the cross that when you are seen by Jesus that you understand that he sees you clearly. That's point number three in your notes today. Jesus sees you clearly from the cross. I, this was never more vibrant to me than just a few days ago. About a week ago, I'm driving here. And I'm on my way to church on Sunday morning. And I am, I am broken inside because I am thinking on a thing. I, I, I actually made a phone call this week to talk to, talk to the mother of the boy that I'm about to describe to you. And I still call him a boy. He was a young man. I was thinking about his life. A young man that I met when he was in middle school. And he used to come to church. And he would come to church on Wednesday night because we would, we would feed them dinner, at, you know, as part of the, the functionality of what we were doing. And he would come and he'd be there and he'd have homework to work on and his mom would be after him to do his homework and he'd be struggling. And I can remember all the way up through his middle school years and into to his eighth grade year, he's struggling with some algebra. And he would sit outside of my office at a table and I would sit next to him and we'd walk through math. I had to relearn it, by the way, because you lose it. I mean, some of you, it would be terrifying if you thought you had to sit with a middle schooler and do any math today. But I reinvested enough to help him through his math. And I began to think on him. I knew him from that age in his life. And I watched him go all the way through high school and graduate and, and, and become a young man. In the course of that life, there was a lot of bad. 
a lot of hard things. And those of you that are educators in the room, you know you see it happening before you, and sometimes you feel powerless to do anything about it. You could just love people, and you could just try to influence them, but you see them making the mistakes they're making. And I began to think about every single thing that I knew about him. And I, I just, you know, there are moments when I get frustrated about his history. At one point in the juncture of our relationship, because he came to church with us, but we were also involved in his community life with the schooling and other things. And his mother looked at me because he was really spiraling at the moment. And she says, he doesn't, he doesn't need a, an authority, another authority figure in his life. He needs to become, you know, he needs a friend. And I, I looked right at her and I said, and by the way, she's precious to me to this day. Precious in a way that I probably don't express to her often enough. But I said to her, I said, he's a poor friend. He doesn't show up when he says he's going to show up. He doesn't keep his word. He doesn't do the things that he says he's going to do. He doesn't try hard when he's there. I said, if he wants to have a friend, he needs to learn how to be one. And we had off and on again kind of moments where he would, he would, he would find his way in and out of, of, of situation. And when things were good, he was always happy to see me. And when things weren't, he was always running from me. I watched him. I watched him get in trouble when he was a juvenile in such a way that he ended up in trouble with the law and I went and visited him in, in jail. There's a distinction between jail and prison and if you don't know it, God bless you. I wrote him letters when he went to prison. I watched him through his drug use and through his thievery and I watched him with his bad friends and all the things they got tangled up in. And you know the thing that broke me when I was on my way to church last week on the way here? You know what broke me? Is that I was saying in my head when I was thinking about all these things, but yet I still loved him. And I had a glimpse, a, just a fracture moment where God just, just shattered me on the way here. And he's like, and now you begin to understand only in a small way the way I see you. That in spite of all of my flaws and shortcomings and every bad thing I've ever done, that God still leans in and loves me. He sees me clearly from the cross. It's not all bad, by the way. The young man did, he, he paid his price to his to his local community and then on into prison and, and did all the things that were required. I watched him go through his meetings and I watched him go through all the court-appointed stuff and I watched him graduate high school. And I watched him get in some more trouble and then I watched him finish that. I watched him get out and clean his life up and get a job and move in with some friends. And then about this time of year, it's, it's just, it's right around this time of year when I got that phone call a fistful of years ago and they said, he's gone, he's passed away. Inexplicably in his sleep a young man. Later, he would be determined that it was, it was apnea. He just laid down to go to sleep one night and didn't have enough air, and, and he just died. And I got to do his funeral. And I'm broken still. There's grief that is still inside of me that I'm still dealing with. But I will tell you that me understanding how much I care about him is a small fraction of what I see in God seeing us from the cross. You see, in this room right now, you might think to yourself, I'm invisible and nobody sees me. You might be here with a group of people and say, they don't really know who I am. And you might be saying to yourself that in this place, I wonder if anybody even cares. And I assure you the answer is yes, God cares. And we might not be doing a good job as your church family of helping, helping you to see that. I want you to hear it clearly described in the scriptures that Jesus is looking down at the foot of the cross and he sees the people that are assembled. He is not thinking on himself in this moment. He is thinking on you. And he sees you clearly. All your flaws. 
every little bit of it, you are seen and you are loved and you are known to him. And he gives a simple instruction. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And he begins to give them purpose and instructs them in some way of life that would measure out to what they should be a part of and what they should be doing. And there's something about knowing that when you see Jesus and he sees you, that he will absolutely give you purpose. We see it, don't we? We get to verse number 28, and we kind of see the, the, the cinematic wind down, these, these breathtaking moments. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on hyssop, and they put it on his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And in this moment, you know, I, I think to myself, and, and I have been in both situations here, so, so hear me clearly. You know that moment when you, it's time, finished eating at the dinner table, wherever, you, wherever you've gone out to eat, and you know the bill is coming, and you're like, oh, man, the bill is coming. And, you know, when you're young and you're in a group, you're like, man, I hope I, hope I don't have to pay for all this food. And so you kind of don't even make eye contact with the waitress, so she will look for whoever is eager to pay the bill, right? And, and it's, it's passing by, and you're like, who's got that? And then somebody's like, oh, we'll take care of you too. And you're like, oh, man, thank you. And there are some people that have made a systematic life out of being this person that is always like, nope, not me. And then there's other people out there that are like, I'll take the check. Right? And then later you grumble about it a little bit. There's a moment when you look at what's being paid right here and you realize that Jesus has raised his hand and he has said, I'll pay the whole price. You know, the scripture says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, I, you know why I think he owns so much? Because he knows exactly how much it's going to cost to pay for us all. The, the magnitude of what he sees here is that he pays the full price. That's point number four if you're following along. Jesus pays the full price. There's no skating out on the check on this one. You know you don't have the resources by which to pay this bill. You know it's coming due. And Jesus says, I'll pay it. But friends, let me tell you, you need to be sitting at his table. Because he wants to pay your check. But he also wants you to see him for who he is. And he wants you to know he sees you for who you are. And those things go together. He is willing to pay the bill. But you have to recognize him as Lord. And in this moment, he has summarized the magnitude of the cost. And at this moment, he has weighed it all out and he says, this is enough to pay for everything. And if that doesn't get you excited, but also grieve you a little bit, then I don't know where else to begin. You see, because God loves us in such a way that when he says it's finished, it's enough to include you. And all of God's people said, do you believe that this morning, that it's enough to include you? He sees you clearly from the cross. He knows what it costs. He understands who you are, and he loves you anyway. 
In a moment, we'll have an invitation, and you'll have the opportunity to come, and you can pray, and you can thank God for for that great, huge price tag that was attached to your life. But some of you might be in this place saying to yourself, I just don't know yet if I believe it. And I would suggest to you this morning that today is the day to make that right. Believe it today because he sees you, and you are not overlooked, and you are not ignored, and he knows who you are, and he loves you anyway, and he has summoned enough payment for even you. Don't let the world define you differently than he defines you. Come today. Receive his payment. Understand his gift. I'd love to talk more with you about it. Would you stand with me? After I pray, I'm going to be standing right here, and I'm going to ask Brandon to stand here, and and I know that uh, you're welcome to come. I'm I'm also going to invite Ted if you want to come. I believe that, that... You might need to come this morning, and you might be right now thinking, if I could just hold out for just a few more minutes, I could stand right here. But why would you if you felt like God was drawing you forward? Why would you wait it out? The burden that you carry will not get lighter if you turn around and leave here without giving it to God. No matter how much you try to ignore it. We're going to pray. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to be in your house. We thank you for an opportunity to come face-to-face with Scripture and realize that in spite of our flaws, that in spite of our shortcomings, that you love us and that we only get a glimpse because you love everyone the same way. And the thing that we're seeing in other people sometimes that we just can't imagine how you can overcome it, but yet you can overcome it. Because the price that you have paid is enough. It's enough for me. It's enough for everyone else here. Lord, I believe that there are people that are in our midst that are carrying loads that they don't have to carry anymore. That they can just lay on the table and you'll take it from them and you'll pay the debt. Lord, I ask, Lord, that we would embrace this this morning, that we would run to you. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.